A bomb goes off in a Michigan school and investigators find more bombs and there may even be an arrest in the works for the father of the child that may be responsible, but innocent until proven guilty. We'll look into what happened there. In other news, the trial for Derek Chauvin has begun and they're finding a hard time getting jurors for it, so we'll talk a bit about what's going on with that. In other news, Huffington Post points out that uh, one of their subsidiaries goes through massive layoffs, so we'll go in a little bit on that. And a sixth accuser comes forward, and yep, we still can't get an answer as to what's going to happen with the nursing home thing. I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Contemporary. My name is Jay Edgar, and we had a kind of slow day yesterday. I was actually kind of struggling to fill 20 tabs through yesterday's news cycle, and then I woke up and looked at the news again today. I'm like, oh, we're not going to have a problem with that today here. 28 tabs. Let's, let's go. Let's do this. Let's figure out what we have going on here throughout the news, what they tried to cram in after Monday and Tuesday's slow news day here. Let's see what they've got going on here. I actually woke up this morning, I saw Jimmy Carter was trending, and I thought to myself, my God, the last guinea worm has died, and the man can finally rest in peace. And it turns out, no, we'll have to talk about how he feels about Georgia and everything else going on there. So, the guinea worms are still out there, and he will not, the man will not die until the last guinea worm is dead. And good on him for that, but... That's what we have here. Before we get into anything, though, head on over and check out my friends who have joined me for the Freedom Scoop Media Group. We are still under construction over there, but in the meantime, head on over there and check out my friends, The Generational Gap, The Daily Ignoramus, The R-Rated Conservative, The Breakdown with Birkenhoff, and The Freckles and Brit Show. Pardon our dust while we construct, but still, bookmark the page and get ready to come back and pick up some of our swag and help us support great creators. So... We will have that up and going, and news alerts will be coming up as uh, as time goes on. Looking in at the Dow, the Dow wound up closing up 0.095%, just a handful of points up yesterday, and started up, it actually ended closer to the previous close than where it started here. So after the futures got into play, it started up here, it came and climbed and climbed and climbed, and then boom. Almost going back to closing in the red. Almost closed in the red, but didn't quite get there. We'll talk a bit about what happened with that. It looks like that was the only one that actually went down. It looks like the NASDAQ and the S&P both uh, enjoyed a pretty good day yesterday, so we'll talk a bit about that. Looking in at Bitcoin, Bitcoin is now at 55996 US dollars and 10 US cents per Bitcoin, which means it's heading back up onto the up here, and I'm sure people will sell off and it'll crash down a little bit again, but... It's looking like it's uh, enjoying a pretty, pretty good pace out there. So we'll talk probably a bit about that coming up in the near future. Looking at gas. Gas appears to be frozen. I didn't expect this uh, segment to stay the same forever and ever. But at this point, yes, gas appears to be frozen at $2.45 a gallon at the Costco on Hepker Road. That's in Madison. Uh, the race in Sun Prairie is also a 245, but more and more stations are jumping on the 249 bandwagon. So that's what we're seeing up out of Madison. Gas prices, 
you know, kind of going up a little bit here. I thought it was going to be more, but they're staying frozen for right now. Looking in at IBD. Maybe. Let that think a second. It's waiting for its cash. There we go. Dow Jones futures rise, but so do Treasury yields with final Biden stimulus vote on tap. Where to look for breakouts from Ed Carson. Dow Jones futures rose modestly early Wednesday, while S&P 500 futures tilted lower and Nasdaq futures fell with Treasury bond yields creeping higher again. The House is set to give final passage to the $1.9 trillion Biden stimulus bill today. That's funny. I thought that was yesterday. The stock market rally attempt had a strong session Tuesday as Treasury yields backed off. The Dow Jones hit a record high before backing off while the S&P 500 index reclaimed key levels. The Nasdaq rebounded strongly but remains well off recent highs. Likewise, growth names such as Tesla, NEO, NVIDIA, and Zoom Video were big winners Tuesday but are still in deep downtrends. New breakouts coming from real economy names, specialty chemicals maker Element Solutions and auto giant Stellantis broke out while steelmaker Turnium and auto dealer CarMax extended gains within buy zones. I'm always surprised when CarMax is going on the up and up because, I mean, just between you and me, CarMax is a little bit shady. They're not as bad as JD Byrider, but they are just a little bit shady. But, hey, they're going on the up and up, so looks like people are going out and getting ready to go and buy cars. Microsoft, less of a high-octane, high-value name than Tesla stock, retook a buy point as well as several key levels. Meanwhile, GE confirmed it will sell its aircraft leasing business to AirCap. GE will get $24 billion and a 46% stake. GE is also planning to do a 1-for-8 reverse stock split. GE stock initially rose early Wednesday, but reversed lower. AirCap, which jumped Monday on reports of a deal, was flat in pre-market trade. Microsoft and NVIDIA stock are on the IBD leaderboard and the IBD50 list. Microsoft is on the IBD long-term leaders as well. KMX stock is Tuesday's IBD stock of the day. <clears throat> we'll talk a bit about the stimulus later, so we won't go too far into this one here. Let's look at the futures. Dow Jones futures rose 0.3% versus fair value. S&P 500 futures lost less than 0.1%, uh, rather, while NASDAQ 100 futures fell 0.4%. The 10-day Treasury yield was at 1.56, slightly higher after sliding Tuesday. A 10-year Treasury auction is set for the day. A poorly received 7-year auction on February 25th sent the Nasdaq tumbling below its 50-day line and pushing the struggling market rally to uptrend under pressure. At 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time, Wednesday, the Labor Tar uh, Department will, bleh, will release the February Consumer Price Index. The CPI hasn't moved Dow Jones futures in quite some time. But the Treasury markets have been signaling some concern about future inflation. And as always, remember, overnight action, Dow Futures and elsewhere, doesn't necessarily translate into actual trading in the next regular stock market session. So, that's what we're seeing from that. It looks like the markets are going to look downward, except for the Dow. So, that's what we have to see here. Let's see what happened yesterday as far as CNBC. NASDAQ roars back 3.6% for its best day in four months. S&P 500 adds more than 1%. Yeah. Let's see what's going on here from Yoon Lee and Maggie Fitzgerald. U.S. stocks rose on Tuesday after a decline in bond yields caused investors to rotate back into the beaten-up technology sector. 
The Nasdaq Composite climbed 3.69% to 1307382 for its best day since November. Tesla soared 19.6% after a five-day losing streak and posted its biggest one-day pop since February 2020. Apple and Facebook jumped more than 4% each, while Microsoft and Netflix both gained at least 2.5%. Amazon rose 3.8%. The tech-heavy benchmark rallied as much as 4.3% during the session. The S&P 500 advanced 1.4% to 3875.44. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed the day near its session low, rising 30.30 points, or 0.1%, to 3183274. At its session high, the blue-chip benchmark jumped more than 300 points to touch an intraday record high. Technology shares rebounded from steep losses as bond yield stabilized. The 10-year Treasury yield fell more than 5 basis points to 1.54%. The benchmark rate traded as high as 1.62% on Monday. After lagging badly for the first few months, growth momentum stocks are exploding higher as investors grow a bit more comfortable around rates and step in to buy this erstwhile most-loved sector. Adam Crisafuli, founder of Vital Knowledge, said in a note. So... Tech is going up, everything else is sinking down a little bit, and, well, it looks like that might reverse as soon as trading opens here, so we will see what happens here. Let's get into the news of the day, starting from the blaze. 16-year-old injures himself and five others after accidentally de uh, detonating homemade bomb at a Michigan high school. I've got a feeling there's a lot more to this story. From Carlos Garcia, his father was charged after the police searched his home. A 16-year-old student injured himself and five others after he accidentally set off a homemade explosive device at a Michigan high school, police and school officials said. The unidentified team allegedly detonated the device in a classroom at Newego High School on Monday. The bomb injured him, four other students, and a teacher. The AP reported that the student who detonated the bomb lost both thumbs from his injuries. Police arrived at the scene around 9 a.m. and evacuated the school. The four students and the teachers were sent to the hospital for treatment of minor injuries. Superintendent of Nuego Schools, Peg Mathis, said in a post on Facebook about the incident that while the students showed a serious lack of judgment, it was not an intentional detonation. Okay, I have questions. The big one being, why the fuck did he have a bomb in school? Intentional or not? It seems like we should have more questions about that, rather than his intentions here, people. This was not somebody planting an explosive device in order to hurt our students, Mathis said. Excuse me? You have taken an improvised explosive device into a place where lots of people gather. There's got to be a reason for this. In the course of the investigation into the incident, Michigan State Police searched the boy's home and made a discovery that led to his father's arrest. A vast array of different explosive devices were found and different materials Nuego County Prosecutor Worth Stay said. Police arrested the boy's father, David Robert Daniel Saylor, 33, and the bomb squad was called upon to detonate the bomb safely. Saylor was charged with one count of explosives manufacture, possession of Molotov cocktail, and one count of contributing to the delinquency of a minor, according to a statement from the police. 
WXMI-TV reported that the man had multiple assault charges in his background. So... Okay, this left me with more questions than answers. The only way that I could come back and look at this and say, okay, everybody except for the dad is completely innocent in all of this is the fact, it's the thought that, okay, maybe this kid found one of these, had no idea what it was and tried to bring it to school to maybe ask his physics professor what it was and what the fuck to do about it. That's the only thing, but boy, this article left me with a lot more questions than where we started from. All right, let's see what they have to say from the news radio. MSP, this is from WWJ950. MSP, more explosive devices found in home of teen who set off homemade bomb in Michigan classroom. From WWJ News Radio. Michigan State Police say they found ex additional explosives in the home of a student who detonated a pipe bomb in a high school classroom. The incident, characterized by police and administrators as accidental, happened at Nuego High School in rural western Michigan Monday morning. Um, we saw most of this here. Uh, looks like this is actually going to be all the same information. I thought this would probably tell us a little bit more about the additional bombs found at the home. But this appears to be the same as what we just read from the blaze, so we're going to drop this one for now and move on to the capital from WUSA 9 CBS out of Washington DC FBI releases new video of suspect and pipe bombs found outside RNC DNC during Capitol riot speaking of things that go boom from Lorenzo Hall and Jordan Fisher the FBI is still searching for the person they believe set two pipe bombs at the Republican National Committee and Democrat National Committee headquarters the night before the U.S. Capitol riot. The agency released several new videos Tuesday, hoping someone will recognize the person's gait, body language, or mannerisms. We are asking the public to come forward with any information that could assist us, including any odd or out-of-character behavior you noticed in a family member, friend, or co-worker leading up to, the, to or after January 5th, the FBI said. The pipe bombs were placed between 7.30 p.m. and 8.30 p.m. on January 5th in one, uh, one in an alley behind the RNC headquarters at 310 First Street Southeast and another next to a park bench near the DNC headquarters located at 430 South Capitol Street, Southeast number 3. According to the FBI, the pipe bombs were made using a 1x8-inch threaded galvanized pipe, a kitchen timer, and homemade black powder. In the new videos, the person can be seen wearing a face mask, a gray hooded sweatshirt, and black and light gray Nike Air Max Speed Turf shoes with a yellow logo. They used a backpack to transport each of the devices. Let's see what this is. On January 5th, 2021, an unknown individual placed two pipe bombs in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Washington, D.C., the devices were placed between 7.30 p.m. and 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. No, this YouTube, we better not do that. Help us identify this individual. I was good in a full screen to get the word out there, but it's YouTube going on to YouTube, so maybe we shouldn't do that. There's no sound with this either, unfortunately.
can't believe the number of people wearing a mask outside either. Seven fifty-two p.m. Corner of Canal Street Southeast and South Capitol Street Southeast. Sitting on a park bench. Yeah, I don't know if you guys got a good look at this dude or not, but we're going to move on from this here. So that's what you have to see from that. The new video offers the clearest images yet of the suspect. They can be seen from multiple angles, sitting on a park, uh, park bench, walking down the alley, near the RNC building, and even walking past the Capitol Hill Club as a D.C. Metropolitan Police Department vehicle appears to drive past. The pipe bombs caused the evacuation of two congressional buildings during the January 6th Capitol riot. Former Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sun testified before a Senate committee that he believed the bombs were placed with the intention to draw USCP resources away from the Capitol during the insurrection. There he is in front of the Capitol Hill Club. Alright, so that's what we see from that. If I don't think that's going to help much because there's not a lot of identifiers to that, but that's what we see for that. The FBI and ATF are now offering a reward of up to $100,000 for information leading to the capture of the person or persons involved in placing the PIP bombs. Ah, see, they typoed. See that? If you have any information, contact the FBI's toll-free tip line at 1-800-CALL-FBI or submit tips online at tips.fbi.gov. And I will advocate for that one. Usually I won't advocate for snitching on your neighbors here, but, you know, my... My philosophy is don't hurt people, don't take your stuff, and this had the potential to hurt people, so let's at least have a look at this and see what we got. All right, let's keep going here. Let's talk about uh, the state versus Chauvin. So this is first a little bit of a live update going on from yesterday about what happened with the jury selection. So we'll go through a little bit about that from... ABC 5 News out of St. Paul, uh, 4.30 p.m., juror 19 has been approved to serve on the jury. Juror number 17 has been dismissed for 3.53 p.m. Uh, number 17 is in the process of being questioned. Number 10, that's at 2.48, has been dismissed due to his safety and work reasons. Juror number 9 has been accepted, that's at 2.28 p.m., uh, 1.45 p.m., juror number 8 has been excused and will not serve on the jury. So we see a lot of this. It's looking like they're having a hard time getting jurors together for all of this. Number 4 has been dismissed at 12.05 p.m. Number 3 has been excused due to cause at 11.25 a.m. Court reconvenes. Juror number 3 begins to be questioned. Number 2 has been selected. So it looks like 2, 10, and 19 are the three so far that they have for that. Let's read what we have going along with this. Uh, I've got a... That's not where I wanted this. Yeah, because all the rest of my uh, George Floyd stuff is down here. All right. I screwed that one up. That was me. On air production. Let's read about uh, this union thing. First off, coming from the Huffington Post Union, today we learned that three, 33 of our unit members or nearly 30% of our unit are being laid off. Our union statement, we are devastated and infuriated, particularly after an exhausting year of covering the pandemic and working from home. 
Uh, this is the statement that they put out. This, also hap uh, this is also happening less than a month after HuffPost was acquired by BuzzFeed. We never got a fair shot to prove our worth. These layoffs reiterate the importance of forming a union and advocating for our colleagues. We are glad that we're protected by a collective uh, bargaining agreement and that our colleagues will receive severance. Our union will continue to make HuffPost a more just and equitable workplace, including pushing for clear, accountable com uh, commitments to hiring and promoting more people of color for transparency around pay equity. So that's the statement that they had here. BuzzFeed announces deep cuts to the Huffington Post staff after acquisition from Sarah Baboltz, and this is from the Huffington Post. BuzzFeed announced layoffs in the Huffington Post newsroom on Tuesday, three weeks after acquiring HuffPo from Verizon Media in February. Hillary Fry, the site's executive director, and Louise Rue, the executive editor for International, will be departing in a restructuring effort aimed at stemming financial losses. HuffPo Canada will also shutter operations later this month. A deal between BuzzFeed, HuffPo, and Verizon Media was first made public in November. Verizon Media stated at the time that BuzzFeed and HuffPo would operate as separate distinct news organizations with their own websites and editorial staff, while BuzzFeed CEO Jonah Peretti led the combined company. It has been a particularly grim year for the media industry. The coronavirus pandemic undermined a business model already on shaky ground due to a massive shift in digital advertising spend towards tech giants Google and Facebook. Layoffs across the industry were on track to break records late last year, Variety reported. Peretti told staffers that the decision, which will affect 47 U.S. employees, including eight in management, was made in order to fast-track the path to profitability for HuffPo, enabling the company to break even this year and eventually turn a profit. HuffPost losses totaled around 20 million for the, uh, I'm sorry, for 2020. Though BuzzFeed is a profitable company, we don't have the resources to support another two years of losses, Peretti said. We want to ensure the homepage remains a top destination on the internet. It's not a top destination. Nobody gives a fuck about Huffington Post. They really don't when they can get the same screeching and ranting from their TV from MSDNC. They don't care about the Huffington Post. When's the last time you saw a Huffington Post article on this screen, the screen you're watching right now? I don't use them, and I don't know a lot of other people that do it. Like, I look at news tips all day, and I almost, I didn't actually know the Huffington Post still existed until this went through. I thought BuzzFeed bought them and shut them down, but, you know, here we are. We also want to maintain high traffic, preserve your most powerful journalism, lean more deeply into politics and breaking news, and build a stronger business or affiliate revenue and shopping content. Although the site has struggled financially for several years, some HuffPo staffers criticized the lack of resources expended to promote the site and its content under Verizon Media. So, they're getting laid off here, and a lot of people took a victory lap. I'm not going to lie, I took a little bit of a victory lap at this myself, just to see the fact that this... I'm sorry, this left-wing rag that is nothing but opinion pieces is struggling in today's media market, in today's independent media market. And I'm not coming out here and telling you that I am a completely objective journalist. I am open about my biases. I am a Federalist with a Liberty bent. 
And the progressive agenda that's coming out, that's authoritarian and top-down, is antithetical. And I'm telling you what I see out of the news from that point of view, which the Huffington Post did as well. But, I mean, it doesn't seem like anybody wanted to see the Huffington Post. It's BuzzFeed's having to go back and lay off. Um, Bridget Phetasy actually had a good take on this, though, and I wanted to share that with you guys before I went out of here because... Yes, it's easy for me to come back around and take a victory lap around the Huffington Post, having to lay people off, but uh, Bridget Phetasy writes, A lot of people who pretend to care about workers laughing at layoffs right now, even if you disagreed with them, those people had families and mouths to feed. I realize that many of those people would have happily destroyed me. And me too. If I ever start to take off, they're going to put a target on me. I realize that many of those people would have happily destroyed me, but I'm not letting the culture wars take my heart. And that's that's it. I can laugh at the Huffington Post, the company, but I do understand the fact that these journalists do, they do need to work and provide for their families. And I'm not going to come out, I'm not going to tell them to, you know, those forbidden three words that'll get you thrown off of Twitter. I'm not going to tell them to do that because they don't know how to do that. That's not what they do. Now, if these people want to check their biases and maybe do some writing for Freedom Scoop, we could possibly arrange something, work with a startup, possibly get something on the back end to keep the roof over your head while we continue to build the site. But yeah, I would work something out with you guys if you guys wanted to come over there and take a look at Freedom and see what that is. We're open to outside opinions. Yes, we are liberty-minded over at Freedom Scoop, but we are open to outside opinions. So... Let me know. We'll work something out, see if something goes with that. But yeah, these people had families. They absolutely did. So take your victory lap around the company, but not the workers. And yes, I understand that they are not going to extend the same thing, but you still got to be the bigger man. I've been watching Cobra Kai and just reminding me of what it's like to be the bigger man. And, you know, when somebody's down, don't give them the kick. Don't punch them while they're already on the ground. So... That's absolutely where I uh, stand with that here. Let's uh, keep going here. From Georgia, Georgia Public Broadcasting. This is a uh, this is a division of NPR, but it's not NPR, so we're not going to do this in the full NPR voice. But hey, don't forget to give that uh, don't forget to give that money to National Progressive Radio, guys. Georgia Senate Republicans passed bill to end no-excuse absentee voting. You know, now. From Stephen Fowler. Republicans in the Georgia Senate narrowly approved SB 241, an omnibus voting bill that would end no-excuse absentee voting, 16 years after Republicans first enacted it. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who is opposed to removing no-excuse absentee and other extreme measures proposed by fellow Republicans in his chamber, did not preside over debate and the vote. Three vulnerable Republican senators from swing districts, John Albers, Kay Kirkpatrick, and Brian Strickland, were the only ones who did not co-sponsor the bill and opted to be excused from the vote. Senator Chuck Hufstetler was excused from the vote as well. In the 56-member Senate, 29 votes is the minimum needed for the bill to pass. SB 241 would make a sweeping a uh, number of changes to Georgia's election code, most notably cracking down on who is eligible to vote by mail. Instead of allowing anyone to request and vote an absentee ballot, the bill would limit it to those over 65. 
physically disabled, required to be outside of their voting precinct during the three-week in-person early voting period, and election day, have a religious holiday fall on election day, works in elections, or is a military or overseas absentee voter. Majority Leader Mike Dugan co-sponsored the bill and misleadingly said his proposal would not limit mail-in voting options for Georgians, estimating that more than 2.7 million of 7.7 million registered Georgians would still be eligible to vote that way. This is not preventing anyone from voting by mail uh, mail and absentee, he said. All this is doing is laying the groundwork for relieving the stresses as we continue to see moving forward. Well, no, the bill actually is limiting who can vote by mail. That's the whole point of this. So, yeah, you are being a little bit dishonest about this. Some Republicans, including Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, say they support cutting back on the vote by mail to help the county elections officials that were overwhelmed in the 2020 cycle by a record turnout and unprecedented number of absentee ballots and in-person voting constraints because of the coronavirus pandemic. However, Governor Brian Kemp, House Speaker Dave Ralston, and Duncan do not support curbing mail-in voting. Debate for this bill stretched nearly three and a half hours with Democrats blasting the GOP pact measure as a modern-day voter suppression after Democrats flipped the state's presidential votes and both U.S. Senate seats. Well, that's partly because that's one of the only words that's in the left-wing vocabulary is voter suppression. It's racist, Nazi, voter suppression, and white supremacist. That's the whole vocabulary right there. Senator Jen Jordan has emerged as one of the fiercest critics of the Republican-backed voting changes, speaking out on the floor against the lack of transparency involved in the 32-page measure. She said, As we look at 9,000-page H.R. 1, including discrepancies in the bill that Republicans said would be fixed down the road. That's sloppy, y'all, she said, especially when you're talking about a bill that's going to impact people's lives, that's going to impact the fundamental right to vote. Actually, it's pretty shameful. Senator Sheik Raymond said Republicans should focus less on laws restricting voting and more on talking to voters about their policies. Why not try to reach out to all the voters in Georgia, like people that look like me, he said. Georgia's changing. Georgia's already changed. If you reach out to folks like me, that look like me, talks like me, you might be able to hold on to power. There's the identity side of it. Meanwhile, the House passed its own 66-page omnibus that would add additional ID requirements for absentee ballots, strip some power from the Secretary of State's offices, and standardize early voting hours, making most counties uh, add additional days and hours but limit larger, more diverse de uh, Democratic-leaning counties. Voting rights groups like, Demo uh, I'm like Democrats, voting rights groups and Democrats, but I repeat myself, point to election data that show weekend voting, Sundays in particular, is disproportionately used by black voters, especially black churches that hold souls to the polls events. Because then you can put church and state together. But if you start to talk about abortion or gay marriage, then you're an evil criminal and separation of church and state is the most importantly enshrined thing in the world. But that's what they're doing here. We got to talk about Jimmy Carter, who I thought had passed away. I, I saw Jimmy Carter trending, and I said this at the top of the show, but I, I thought the dude passed away. I thought the final guinea worm was dead, and Jimmy Carter could finally rest in peace. But no, he's just pissed off about this. 
From CNN, Jimmy Carter saddened and angry over Georgia voting restriction efforts from Shauna Mizell. Former President Jimmy Carter on Tuesday denounced recent Republican-led efforts to restrict voter access in his home state of Georgia, saying he is disheartened, saddened, and angry. American democracy means every eligible person has the right to vote in an election that is fair, open, and secure. It should be flex well, fair, open, and secure because we put plywood over the window in the vote counting room. It should be flexible enough to meet the electorate's need changing needs. As Georgians, we must protect these values. The former Democratic president wrote in a, I don't know why I kept reading that in Carter voice, in a statement, we must not lose the programs we have made. We must not promote confidence among one segment of the electorate by restricting the participation of others. Our goal always should be to increase, not decrease, voter participation. Carter's rebuke comes as Georgia's Republican-led legislature is advancing a sweeping election bill with restrictions on voter access, repealing no-excuse absentee voting. The bill creates ID requirements to request an absentee ballot and establishes a hotline to file complaints and allegations of voter intimidation and illegal election activities. But there again, ID for your mail-in vote, is that shouldn't be a hard thing. I know I burned it already, but I got the mail-in vote application here because they sent them out to everybody in Wisconsin. And yes, it said, you have to have a copy of your ID and a co-signature on this showing your sponsor that you can vote by mail and that this is truly your ID. They did put a lot of hoops to jump through to vote by mail in Wisconsin. I don't know that a lot of them were followed. You know, with stuff like Democracy in the Park. But uh, they definitely had hoops to jump through. It's If you want to vote, you should actually go out and make the effort to vote, not just have somebody hand it to you and then there you are at the end of it. If you want to vote, then vote, but actually make the effort to do so. If you just give it away, it's not valued as much. And I do want everybody who's eligible to vote to vote, but I want them to go in to know the process to vote and make an effort to do it rather than just laying back in their bed next to their tendy vendor with the ballot sitting in front of them saying, Mom, my tendy vendor is empty. What do you mean you won't refill my tendy vendor until I fill out this form? So, yeah, we'll see what happens out of Georgia. From Politico. Anti-filibuster liberals face a Senate math problem. From Burgess Everett. There's a reason Senate Democrats haven't changed the Senate's filibuster rules so far. They don't have the votes yet. Majority Leader Charles U. Schumer and his deputies are going to have to work aggressively to get them. Achieving lockstep uh, unity among a diverse 50-member caucus to change the rules for a tradition-bound institution is going to be a challenge, to say the least. Just look at Senator Joe Manchin, who made waves on Sunday by expressing openness to enforcing a talking filibuster that requires senators to remain on the floor objecting to a bill, making it more painful for the minority to demand 60-vote threshold to pass most legislation. Manchin's comments elated progressives and forced the White House to reiterate its preferences to preserve the filibuster, despite a growing number of Democratic bills stalling in the upper chamber. But the gregarious centrist clarified on Tuesday that he continues to support an executive 60-vote uh, requirement for most legislation. 
He thinks either the majority needs to come up with 60 votes to overcome the filibuster, or the minority to come up with 41 votes to sustain it at some point in the process, effectively preserving the chamber's supermajority requirement. And he acknowledged that the touchy status of the filibuster in his own party. Jimmy Christmas, buddy, that's why I even hate to say anything to you, Manchin said in a Tuesday interview. I want to make it clear to everybody. There's no way I would vote to prevent the minority from having input into the process of the Senate. That means protecting the filibuster, he added. It must be a good process to get to that 60-vote threshold. And it absolutely should. You should not be able to cram down your agenda without trying to sell it to people. That's authoritarianism. That's a dictatorship. That is a dictatorship by majority rule. If you want something, you should have to sell it to people, not force it down their fucking throats. So yes, Manchin is absolutely right on this, but people are getting more and more pissed about him, and I'm going to laugh my ass off. I really am. When he looks up and he does, what was it, Joe Crowley from New Jersey, the one that switched his parties last time, when he just comes up and says, you know what, I'm not a Democrat anymore, I'm a Republican. Hey Mitch, you're the majority leader again. Now that would be hell on earth in its own way, but it would still make me laugh quite a bit. And if they pushed cinema out too, that would make me laugh even harder. So that's what we have going on with that. Uh, let's see from the Hill. Badowski warning Senate, uh, Senator Manchin could elect GOP Congress and president. From Brett Budowski, opinion contributor. Though, so this is an opinion piece. Not green check verified, so take that for what it's worth. Across the nation, in states controlled by Republicans, GOP party officials are trying to orchestrate the most aggressive campaigns of voter suppression, voter restriction, and partisan gerrymandering in modern history. Like I said, this is an opinion piece. <clears throat> With voting rights and democracy under siege in the 2020 election, and now for the 2022 and 2024 elections, Two matters are paramount. First, Congress must pass urgently needed legislation that has passed the House and is pending before the Senate and must not be killed by a Republican filibuster. Second, Democrats should engage in massive, uh, massive rather voter registration and mobilization campaigns building on the successful efforts in 2020 and begin a Freedom Summer this year, similar to Freedom Summer in the 1960s, led by historic voting rights champions, including the late Representative John Lewis. Today, as hundreds of voter suppression bills are moving through the state legislatures, hyperpartisan Republican vote uh, suppression and hyperpartisan gerrymandering advocates are confident that the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who once bragged that he is the Grim Reaper who buries Democratic proposals and who spearheaded endless filibusters against Democratic proposals throughout the presidency of Barack Obama, will filibuster any attempt to protect the voting rights or to seek nonpartisan redistricting affecting the upcoming elections, and furthermore, you have no authority to do any of this. The Senate has no authority to touch anything that they're proposing in HR1. But yes, this is uh, this is Budowski coming out and saying that because Senator Manchin won't cave on the uh, on the filibuster, then he is destroying the Voting Rights Act and destroying the vote and just making voter suppression happen. And ah. Uh, As the RRC likes to say, go back and suck on that donkey dick a little bit more, huh? 
All right, let's keep going. Speaking of what's going on in the House, or in Congress rather, Tim Ryan went off on the GOP talking about the minimum wage. Let's hear what he had to say and then discuss. Mr. Speaker, one of the earlier speakers said, this is the most dramatic change in labor law in 80 years. And I say, thank God. In the late 70s, a CEO made 35 times the worker. Today, it's three to 400 times the worker. And our friends on the other side running around with their hair on fire. Heaven forbid we pass something that's going to help the damn workers in the United States of America. Heaven forbid we tilt the balance that has been going in the wrong direction for 50 years. We talk about pensions, you complain. We talk about the minimum wage increase, you complain. We talk about giving them the right to organize, you complain. But if we were passing a tax cut here, you'd be all getting in line to vote yes for it. Now stop talking about Dr. Seuss and start working with us on behalf of the American workers. I yield back the balance of my time. The gentleman, the gentleman yields back. There's so much wrong with this. And first and foremost, if you really care about the American worker, then maybe you should get some of the restrictions out of the way so small businesses can rise up and compete with your big business fucking buddies who can afford to pay the union dues and the union demands and are still going to get richer as they're the monopolies that take over production. Maybe you should get some of that stuff out of there so people can go back and fight back and start their own companies and compete with these people. Bet you never thought of that. No, no, it's just that we have to be the ones that come out and save them because we are Congress and we are astute. And once again, if people want to come together and collectively bargain, I have no problem with that. I really don't. I don't think the government needs to be involved. And I really don't think that the money that's coming together to collectively bargain with should be coming out of the uh, company's payroll department. Those are my gripes about that, but the government should not be involved with that. That should be a private thing. But, you know, you go and vote on what you think is best. All right, let's keep going. From NBC News, shout it from the rooftops, $1.9 trillion COVID bill delivers stimulus and a political fight. From Sahil Kapoor. Democrats are betting they already have the key to success in the 2020 midterm of the election. The $1.9 trillion corporate giveaway with 9% of it going to COVID relief that Joe Biden is poised to sign into law. The House plans to give the final passage to the Senate-approved legislation Wednesday, enabling Biden to start pushing money out the door. That includes $1,400 checks, $300 a week federal jobless benefits, and funds for vaccine distribution. It was a grueling task for Democrats to keep enough members in line to pass the bill, but the next part will be even harder. Persuading voters to reward them and beating back a determined Republican campaign to undermine it after they unified vote against it. Well, with the propaganda that they're pushing out of uh, about it, uh, we definitely do need to watch that and make sure the facts are out there. History favors the GOP as the party in power usually loses congressional seats in the midterm. A representative, uh, Sean Patrick Maloney of New York, chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, said selling the COVID-19 aid bill will be a big piece of the puzzle to hold the House majority. Anytime you're delivering for the American people, you're strengthening your position politically. 
Well, what happens when you're delivering for your big corporate buddies and people find out about it? So this is going to strengthen us because it's good policy. Okay. He said in an interview, we should shout it from the rooftops that we're passing historic legislation that will reboot the economy and end the pandemic. Okay. I want to step back here and just talk for one second about what this guy just said. Because Maloney also came out and said that it was a terrible thing to have this bill read back out on the floor and then debated over. Maloney also said that Ron Johnson's reading of the bill was just stymieing progress. We should shout it from the rooftops what we want them to hear, but what, what's not actually in the bill. If you were really shouting it from the rooftops, then you should have this bill in its full text plastered everywhere out there for people to see. Not hidden in one place in congress.gov and prayers that it never sees the light of day otherwise. That people just take their check and say, yes, thank you, daddy government. Thank you, daddy. So that's what he has to say about this. Um, GOP operatives say they intend to highlight the bill's flaws and turn voters against it, which could make for it a defining issue as Democrats face major hurdles in passing other parts of the legislative agenda. Republicans will accuse Democrats of using the virus emergency package to pass a bunch of unrelated liberal spending. Which they did. Said Chris Hartline, a spokesman for the National Republican Senatorial Committee, which needs a net gain of one seat to win control. And once again, keep pushing Mansion and Cinema. And tell me what happens. Nobody denies that there's some stuff in the bill that's popular, he said, but the cons of this bill have more staying power than the pros of this bill. And speaking of which, let's see what the blaze has to say about this. <clears throat> Democrats stuck $86 billion in no-strings-attached bailout in the COVID relief bill to rescue union pension plans that were failing long before the pandemic. From Chris Field. The massive COVID relief package, the Democrat majority leader, Charles U. Schumer, pushed through the Senate over the weekend, has been repeatedly criticized for having more pork for lawmakers, non-pandemic priorities than for actual COVID relief for families and businesses impacted by the government-imposed restrictions during the last year of the coronavirus. One of those non-COVID priorities, the New York Times, a former newspaper, detailed recently, is a nifty little $86 billion bailout for failing union pensions pensions that were falling apart long before the pandemic hit. And the bailout isn't alone to help the unions as they restructure or reform their plans. It's just an $86 billion in cash with no strings attached. The Times revealed recently that the relief bill is making its way through Capitol Hill includes a massive bailout for 185 multi-employer pension plans that are so close to collapse that without the rescue, more than a million retired truck drivers, retail clerks, builders, and others could be forced to forego their retirement income. Which, yes, okay, we do need to watch out for these people, but I don't think it should come off the taxpayer's dime either. Unless you've come out and told the taxpayers that this is what you're going to do and let them vote on it. Once again, if the taxpayers come together and say that, okay, it's okay, we'll, we'll give $86 million to these pension funds, then that's a completely different story. I don't agree with it because the government shouldn't be involved in that, but if the taxpayers come together and speak, then that's a different story. But it appears that 
nobody really knows that this is in here. All they know is, where's my fucking $1,400 check, people? And by the way, private charity works way better than the government, and the private charities take way less off the top, just so you know. An alarming number of these plans, the Times said, are running out of funds, a problem that existed for years before the pandemic, and as a result of fading unions, serial bankruptcies, and the misplaced hope that investment income would foot most of the bill so that employers and workers wouldn't have to. According to the paper, the stimulus bill would give the weakest plans the funds to pay hundreds of thousands of union retirees their full pensions for the next three decades. The great news for the unions is that they don't have to do anything don't have to pay it back, freeze accruals, reform their system, or end the practices that led to the problem in the first place. And that's a part of the problem, too. Now, we could sit back here and discuss the way the unions manage money and the way that they encourage their workers to manage money. We could sit back and discuss this all day, but I would rather focus on what the government is doing, and that is the fact that, yes, they, they gave this money away for votes, essentially. So... That's hidden in there. And I do want to point this back out. We talked about this on the RedNet show. I have not shown this to you guys, my audience over on Contemporary, but we talked about this on the RedNet show. I've mentioned this, but I haven't brought the graphic up for you guys. So this is the this is what the CBO is putting out as far as what they want you to believe the American Rescue Plan is doing. And I crunched some numbers about this. Now, yes, if you look at this pie chart, this does come out to the $1.9 trillion that they're talking about this being. But I, I crunched some numbers when I first saw this chart. Now, one of the big sticking points to the compromise to get the American Rescue Plan out was the fact that they cut the number of people who were eligible to get the direct stimulus payments. I think it's like 80000 is the cutoff. 75,000 is the cutoff for the full 1,400, and 80,000 is the absolute hard cutoff at the end. After you make $80,000 a year in 2019, you cannot get stimulus off this one, which cut a lot of people out of there, especially in New York and California, because $80,000 is the amount that you have to pay in Los Angeles and New York City to get a 400-square-foot hole in the wall with a toilet next to the bed. So this cut a lot of people out of this. And I actually just, I thought to myself, after I saw this chart, I got my calculator out and I said, okay, tell me, what does it cost to give every man, woman, and child in this country $1,400? And I calculated out. I assumed the number of $330 million, which I believe the population is less than that. I believe it's 326 and some change right now. Is the uh, current population, um, correct me if I'm wrong on that in the chat, I will look over there for that, but $1,400 checks for every man, woman, and child with a population of $330 million in this country is $465 billion. According to this chart, $1,400 checks for a select few people who make under uh, $75,000 a year, let's just keep that $5,000 threshold apart for a second, a select number of $1,400 checks for anybody who makes under $75,000 a year apparently costs $424 billion. So it would only cost less than, no, a little bit more than $40 billion more. No, less than, because it was $463. $39 billion more to give one to everybody. 
Something doesn't math here. <clears throat> Something doesn't, then that's, I look at that and then, you know, you can sit back and wonder where the extra pork is and all the rest of these little pieces of the pie chart. But this is the propaganda that the CBO is trying to tell you is what's happening here. So something to think about and something to make you wonder what else is in this bill. All right. I have, uh, I've got one here from NPR once again. We're going back to the Chauvin thing in spite of the fact that I put uh, the stories in the wrong order and I put the beginning part of the Chauvin part way back at the beginning of the show. We got to talk about this from NPR. Remember, they need your money. They need your payout. Give them, won't you donate to them, so they can spread their progressive and communist ideas around the country. Because your taxpayer money isn't enough for them. This is from Bill Chappelle, George Floyd case. Jury selection begins in Chauvin's trial. Jury selection in the highly anticipated trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin began in district court on Tuesday, even as the judge in the case awaits higher court rulings that could halt the proceedings. Chauvin faces charges in the killing of George Floyd last Memorial Day. The first juror in the case was selected late Tuesday morning, a man dubbed juror number two, as he was the second person to be interviewed. The man, whom attorneys later described as white, said he works as a chemist. Juror number two acknowledged being familiar with the media coverage surrounding Floyd's death. At one point, Chauvin's defense attorney, Eric Nelson, asked him if he believed Chauvin is responsible for Floyd dying. Well, I don't believe you're allowed to ask that. <clears throat> I don't think I can say it one way or another. I mean, not here, the man replied. You know, maybe at the time I had my opinion, but with some distance. I don't think I can say as Nelson concluded questioning the man, he noted that some people respond to jury questionnaires in an attempt to elude uh, jury duty, and some reply in an intentional effort to get off the jury. Would you describe yourself as either of those, he asked the man. My answers were truthful. That's how I would describe my answers, juror number two replied. No, we're not going to watch four hours and 38 minutes of video. Never mind. I was going to see what that looked like, but that's four hours and 38 minutes. We're not going to watch that whole thing. The trial got, uh, has gotten off to a tentative start, with both the prosecution and the defense filing appeals to a higher court ruled on Friday that Hennepin County Judge Peter Cahill should reconsider his original decision to dismiss the third-degree murder charge against the former Minneapolis police officer. At times on Tuesday, Cahill paused to let the attorneys uh, check their phones for possible word of rulings from either state appeals court or the Minnesota Supreme Court. The subject of race came up midway through the day's proceedings as attorney Steve Schleicher of the prosecution team told, uh, noted that Chauvin's defense attorneys had challenged two jurors, both of them Hispanic, for cause. Nelson had challenged juror number one, a woman, citing concerns about her ability to follow the trial in English, she had struggled to reply to the court's questionnaire. Nelson exercised his second challenge to block a Hispanic man who had recently moved to Minneapolis from Southern California. After the prosecution questioned whether the defense explanations for striking the two jurors were race neutral as required by law, Cahill says he believes that they were. So, 
Uh, concerns about the woman's fluency were valid, he said, and in the case of the male juror, Nelson had said the man's experience in martial arts could make him unwilling to change his views that Chauvin putting his knee on Floyd's neck was, in the potential juror's words, illegal. So, yeah, definitely... Definitely some things to watch for on this one. This is definitely going to be the trial of the century here, and people are going to be watching this. This is going to be like the OJ trial. Everyone's going to be glued to the TV. They're going to be glued to the announcements, the radio, just to see what happens with this. And uh, as far as I know, there are 19 jurors in, as we saw in the other one, and only three of them confirmed. So jury selection is going to be almost impossible with this. This has been plastered over the news everywhere, constantly. It's going to be a struggle to get to 12, but I definitely want to go back and see. All right, from ABC News. Third juror selected in Derek Chauvin case, despite prosecutors asking trial to be halted from Bill Hutchinson. Jury selection in the murder case against former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd began on Tuesday, despite prosecutors asking the Minnesota Court of Appeals to halt the high-profile trial. After spending the day questioning a dozen potential jurors, lawyers in the case seated the first three members of the panel. They are a chemist for an environmental testing company who is engaged to be married to a physical therapist, a woman who said she's super excited to be a juror and is related to a northern Minnesota police officer, and a financial auditor who said he's formed a somewhat negative impression of Chauvin due primarily to the death of George Floyd, but that he could set his opinions aside to render a verdict based solely on the evidence presented in the court. The selection process ended for the day, about 4.30 p.m. local time, after the third juror was seated. I wonder how long that's going to take, because they, they took all day to get three. The first pool of potential jurors were brought into the courtroom after just 9 a.m. local time, and prosecutors and attorneys for Chauvin each introduced themselves. Hennepin County District Court Judge Peter K. Hill says he intends to keep the jury selection process going until the appellate the court tells him otherwise. Chauvin's lawyers filed an appeal with the state Supreme Court after the appellate court issued a ruling on Friday instructing Cahill to reinstate a third-degree murder charge against Chauvin after finding that the judge aired in October when he dismissed the count. So, this one's going on. Three jurors. And a lot of fireworks to come. So, we will see what happens with this. From CBS2 out of New York. Report. Sixth accuser comes forward, says Cuomo uh, acted inappropriately towards her at a governor's executive mansion. From CBS New York team. The Albany, uh, I'm sorry, a sixth woman has reportedly come forward and is accusing Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment. The Albany Times Union reported that a member of the executive chamber staff says the governor inappropriately touched her last year during an encounter at the executive mansion where she had been summoned to do work. The newspaper withheld the identity of the woman and has not reached her for comment. Her allegations were reportedly made over the weekend to a supervisor in the governor's office, CBS2's Marsha Kramer reported. On a conference call with reports on Tuesday afternoon, Cuomo was asked about the new allegations. Hey! You know, I'm not aware of any other claim. As I said last week, this is very simple. I never touched anyone inappropriately, okay? Don't be a wise guy. And as I said last week, 
I never made any appropriate advances. As I said last week, no one ever told me at the time that I made them feel uncomfortable, okay? A spokesperson for AG Letitia James, whose office is investigating the charges, said, We cannot comment on this matter. So there's number six there. They're coming out of the woodwork left and right. But uh, Janice Dean tweets back out, and something we should really pay attention to on this, as the news organizations breathlessly report a sixth woman coming forward about hashtag creepy Cuomo, please don't forget the 15,000 dead seniors he helped to kill and then covered up the death toll. And that's what we need to pay attention to. A lot of these allegations cannot be corroborated. They were in private. There don't seem to be any witnesses, just like we saw with Kavanaugh. And even to an extent with Reed, because I wouldn't have corroborated that one either. I would not have put that in front of a court of law with Tara Reed. I would not have done anything like that, except for the fact... The only reason I continue to bring it up is the fact that under Kavanaugh was believe all women. Well, once again, we're sitting in a situation where I've got a lot of he said, she said. I've never seen any concrete evidence of all this. And meanwhile, nobody's talking about, as Janice Dean points out, the 15,000 dead seniors. So, that's what we have going on with that. I've got one here from the Daily Wire. Pasaki snaps when asked about how Biden's DHS is handling Biden's border crisis. It's not our program. From Daily Wire News, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki wilted under pressure during Tuesday's press conference as reporters repeatedly pressed the administration for answers about President Biden's border crisis. One of the most notable exchanges came when a reporter asked Psaki if newly reported on statistics about the border crisis were accurate. Saki responded by claiming the reporter should ask the Department of Homeland Security about the numbers because it's not our program. The DHS is run by the Biden administration, and Biden's nominee to lead the department, Alejandro Mayorkas, was confirmed by the U.S. Senate and now runs the department. I would encourage you, you know, let's just listen. Why won't you confirm that number? That's a very important number. I, 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 we've been very clear uh, that there is an increase, that there are more children coming across the border than we have facilities for at this point in time. Uh, those numbers are tracked by the Department of Homeland Security, so I'm certainly, I'm just suggesting that you talk to them about specifics. Well, we them, Jen, they won't confirm the numbers. Well, I, I would encourage you to go back to them and ask them again. We're not going to confirm them from the White House. It's not our program. It's the are Department of Homeland Security. The department, is the White House encouraging the department to release those numbers? And in the spirit of transparency that the Secretary promised here at this point? We, we certainly encourage Ooh. transparency, but what I also think is important is to talk about what the root causes are here and what we're doing from a policy standpoint to try to address the challenges uh, that we're facing and that these kids are facing as they come across the border. And why won't you confirm that number? That's a very important number. That is a very important number, by the way. During another exchange, Stacky was pressed about whether the administration would admit there's a crisis going on at the southern border. Why is this a crisis at the border? Look, I don't think we need to sit here and put new labels on what we have already conveyed is challenging. What we have conveyed is a top priority for the president. What our policy teams are working on every single day. They obviously, there was a trip to the border uh, this weekend. They are working uh, over the course of every day uh, since then on putting in place policies that can help address what we're seeing and, and help ensure that we are uh, keeping these kids safe and moving them as quickly as possible from uh, border patrol facilities to, uh, to shelters where they can have access to educational resources, health resources, mental health resources, 
legal aid, et cetera. Go ahead. Is this a crisis? Circle back. Look, I don't think we... Several minutes later, another reporter pressed Saki again on the border crisis, asking, why is, has this administration been so reluctant to call it a crisis? Go ahead. Thanks, Jen. A couple questions. Um, to follow up on the border, why has this administration been so reluctant to call it a crisis, with a huge uptick in the number of migrants being detained, including thousands of children? If that doesn't qualify as a crisis, what does? Well, because we think that it's most important to explain the substantive policy of what's happening, uh, what the root causes are of why these kids are coming, and why what we're doing to try to solve what is a very challenging circumstance. Go ahead. Jen, a couple questions. Um, to follow All right. So that's what the, that's what Jen Saki has to say. I mean, she sucked at this. She she has no answers. Which. Honestly, there needs to be a better communication between her and the White House on top of all this because that's that's what her job is, is to, even if she doesn't have the answers, to come up with an answer to make it sound good and make it sound flowery. She is the propaganda department for the White House, just like Kaylee and Sarah were for the Trump White House. That is what the press secretary does. But to see her wither and falter like this, you kind of understand why Joe Biden himself hasn't come out in 48 days and made a solo press conference of his own. Because if they can get under her skin like this, and that's actually her job, imagine what they're going to do to an 80-year-old Alzheimer's patient. So that's what we have to see from that. Definitely. Definitely good to see. All right. I got just a couple more here. We'll do something I'm thankful for and head on out of here. Arkansas governor signs a near-total abortion ban into law from Andrew DeMillo. Let's read a bit about this, and I'm going to give you my take on this. Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson on Tuesday signed into law legislation banning nearly all abortions in the state, a sweeping measure that supporters hope will force the U.S. Supreme Court to revisit its landmark Roe v. Wade decision, but opponents vowed to block before it takes effect later this year. The Republican governor had expressed reservations about the bill, which only allows the procedure to save the life of the mother, and does not provide exceptions for those impregnated in an uh, act of rape or incest. But don't you know, that's like every abortion that ever, that, that's all that they are. Arkansas is at least uh, one of 14 states where legislators have proposed outright abortion bans this year. Hutchinson said he was signing the bill because of its overwhelming legislative support and my sincere and long-held pro-life convictions. The bans were pushed by Republicans who want to force the U.S. Supreme Court to revisit its 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, legalizing abortion nationwide. Conservatives believe the court is more open to striking down the decision following former President Donald Trump's three appointments to the court. We must abolish abortion in this nation just as we abolished slavery in the 19th century. All lives matter. Republican Senator Jason Rappert, the bill sponsor, said in a statement. And they hit on that point right on the nose. This isn't about going out and banning abortion in Alabama. Well, it kind of is, because if Roe goes down, then they can finally do that. But this is more about getting the case up to Roe. And I said, when they put, when they put Kavanaugh in, I said, this isn't going to be an issue where abortion is overturned tomorrow because Brett Kavanaugh bangs on his gavel and says, okay, no more abortion. No, this has to go through a process. It has to, and a law has to be enacted. Somebody has to be denied the ability to do so. And then it has to get appealed. 
to a local district court, then to a state district court, then to a U.S. district court, and to the Supreme Court. And I don't know if this will ever even get up to that point, to be completely honest. If they go through this and this happens. Because there are a lot of courts to strike this down in between. To look at this and say, no, you can't do this. Why are you bringing this into my courtroom? But that's what they appear to be doing here is to try and get, get the case back up there to go back and revisit this and you know, see if they can get it overturned. And once again, if you overturn Roe versus Wade, it's not going to be chained him to the stove and impregnate him every 12 months like the Handmaid's Tale-dressed cosplayers seem to believe that it is. If it happens... It gets kicked back down to the states. And California and New York are never going to overturn this. You are going to need a lot more legislation and a lot more headache out there in order to completely overturn abortion itself. The decision and giving it federal mandate, that's one thing. That can be overturned. And I think that can be overturned within the confines of the Constitution. But as far as this... Good luck. That's all I have to say. If you think this will get to the Supreme Court anytime in the next 10 years, you're out of your mind. All right. From The Blaze, New York Times interviewed Josh Hawley's middle school principal and high school prom date for a recent hit piece. From Phil Shiver. Republican Senator Josh Hawley has been the subject of seething progressive ire ever since he led the charge to object to the Electoral College certification of the 2020 presidential election. Critics on the left have harassed his family, called for his removal from Congress, canceled the publication of his forthcoming book, and even reportedly planned a secretive ethics investigation against him for doing what they did when they tried to count the votes for Trump, by the way. Yet perhaps the most eye-opening attack launched against the senator came in the form of Sunday's hit piece, published by the New York Times, a former newspaper, which traced its probe of the 41-year-old senator back to his preteen days in the article, The Times, attempting to uncover the long-standing psychological factors that drove Hawley's fateful decision, went as far back as middle school to gather comments from his peers in order to answer the question, How did he get here? 41 years old. Which means, well, that puts him four to five years older than me, depending on when his birthday is. We're going to go with five. Which means that he was in middle school. When did I start middle school? 1994, which means he started middle school in 1989. And that's how far back they're going to get dirt on this dude. 1989. Think about that for a second. That also means that they went out to somebody who went to prom with him in... Probably 1996. You know, when I was in middle school. The senator's objection to the election results surprised some supporters, the Times wrote, but interviews with dozens of people close to him show his growing comfort with doing what it takes to hold on to power. Those close to the senator evidently included his middle school principal and his high school prom date. 
In recent weeks, some of Mr. Hawley's old classmates and teachers have been aghast at his role in undermining confidence in America's elections. I've been very disappointed to see who he has become, said Christian Reuter Thompson, a close friend growing up, who was once Mr. Hawley's prom date. Even his middle school principal, Barbara Weebling, has weighed in. I'm not surprised he's a politician and that he's shooting for the presidency, said Miss Weebling, a vocal supporter of Democrats. The only thing I, uh, is I think he had a strict moral upbringing, and I was really disappointed he would suck the country into the lies that Trump told about the election. I just think that that's wrong. Nineteen eighty-nine. Thirty-two years ago. I didn't stop there. Apparently, it wasn't enough to take a comment from Holly's middle school principal. Rather, the Times felt it would be productive to gather reflections from other figures associated with his middle school experience, including former teacher and classmate, the classmate Andrea Randall. Even recalled an incident where Holly pulled her hair. And it's a black classmate, too, because of course it was. Miss Randall, a black classmate, was frustrated that Mr. Hawley didn't do enough to respond to the police killing of George Floyd last May. After initially exp What was he going to do? It's 12 hours drive. Flight would be a little bit uh, shorter, but you still have to plan for the flight. But it's... 12 hours drive from here to Washington, D.C., and it's another five hours to Minneapolis. What the fuck was he going to do? Go pull Derek Chauvin off of Floyd? After initially expressing sympathy, he later accused an alliance of Democrats and the woke mob of dividing the country. We played around after school, and I remember him pulling my hair after history class, and that's what I remember... It's so, it's so bizarre, she said. Me and my friends have talked about it, even over Christmas. Was he always like this? And we didn't know. In the article, the Times also threw some shade on Holly's upbringing in what it characterized as a traditional, patriarchal, and church-going household and precariously noted that Holly's first principles were guided by his Christianity. This is your journalism right here. This is what you get out of the mainstream news. Why do you think I come out every morning to provide you an alternative? All right, last one here, then we'll do something I'm thankful for and head on out of here. Should I tell the Discord sto uh, story? No, I'm not going to. I'll protect your privacy, see you all. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer could face charges over nursing home deaths from Mark Moore. A prosecutor in Michigan suggested that Governor Gretchen Whitmer could face criminal charges over her handling of deaths at, the, at nursing homes in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic as the state attorney general launched a probe into the fatalities. The news comes as Republicans in the Michigan legislature said they will hold hearings into a $155,000 confidential separation agreement made to former health department director Robert Gordon amid accusations that it may be a hush payment. Maycomb County Prosecutor Peter Lucido said that he's unable to get information about the deaths at nursing homes and long-term care facilities because of strict laws that shield patients' health care information. 
if we find there's been willful neglect for, uh, of office, if we find there's been reckless endangerment of a person's life by bringing them in, then we would move forward with charges against the governor. Of course, we would. Nobody's above the law in this state, Lucido told ABC7 WXYZ on Monday. The questions surrounding Whitmer over the nursing home deaths are similar to the scandal swirling around New York Governor Andrew Cuomo that even before his mounting sexual harassment scandal had prompted calls for him to step down or be impeached. The embattled governor is also dogged by accusations from five women that he sexually harassed them, six, six women now, by inappropriately touching or kissing them and by making improper comments to them. Whitmer, in an interview on CNN Sunday, said she supports an independent investigation into her fellow Democratic governor. So, that's... Well, I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. It should. Especially if she did the crime, but... You know, it's rules for one class and different rules for the other class. Keep that in mind. We're not all one people in this country anymore. I think Whitmer could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and retain her governorship at this point. But she is, well, we don't know what's going to happen with us. We will see. But that's what we have here for the news. And the last thing that we do on Friday, it's not Friday, it's Wednesday. The last thing we do on Wednesday is what I'm thankful for. So we've got a few things to talk about as far as thankfulness goes. But I think the big one right now just comes recently. I just put up the audio version of the Red Net show and added the BitChute version as well from this past week because there was a little bit of a family emergency. I'm not going to really go into what it was. That is between you guys, the audience, and Elaine, if you guys want to talk to her about that and figure out what it was that happened. All I'm saying is that you should say a prayer for her. If you guys do believe in somebody to pray to, you should definitely say a prayer for her at this point. But I'm not going to divulge what happened there. But I'm very thankful that we set up the Freedom Scoop Network the way that it was. And you don't, everyone knows that I took some time last summer and I went and hung out with Stephen Ignoramus and John from the Generational Gap and Robert from the Generational Gap too. We all hung out and drank a bunch of uh, whiskey and beers and had some burgers and enjoyed the hot Florida humidity. With that being said, I was able to, at the very last second, because I found out about the family emergency 20 minutes before live, I pulled out my phone immediately, I threw a text out to John from Generational Gap, and he was in there. And the networking. When I first started Heads World, I had no idea where I was going to get guests because I didn't know anybody. I had a few people that I tweeted back and forth with, but for the most part, I didn't really know anybody in the movement. I talked to Brady Leonard before. I'd been listening to his podcast. He and I had tweeted back and forth before, but I didn't, I didn't know anybody. And now here I sit, two years later, and I know people. I, there are people. I have a list. Write down. If I need a backup guest in a hurry, of people that I can call and can usually accommodate. I've had a couple emergencies where that hasn't been possible, but... I do have a list of people that I can call that are ready to go within a day's notice. I try to give it a day, but sometimes you just get that 20 minutes. And I'm thankful to have that network now. And, you know, spending almost a year isolated at the end of a relationship, don't want to go too deep into that, but I was isolated. And I never thought that I'd be able to come out and have a network again. And here we are. I've got regular watchers, regular people who watch the show every day, most of whom have wrenches now. And people that can come out at a moment's notice and help make sure that every Monday at 5.30, we're sitting here listening to the Sticker Brush Symphony 
ready to talk about the news at 5.30 at night, Monday night. So thank you to John and thank you to the network that I've built. And thank you to everybody else who's recommended people that I talk to, who've come into the audience every day, who've watched this. The network is what I'm thankful for because, you know, isolation sucks balls. And everybody needs a friend sometime. And that's going to be it for the day. So we are going to head out. I'm going to get some breakfast together. We'll, get, uh, we'll go get some work done for the day. Need to get some music playing here. It's thinking. It's thinking. All right. So thanks, everybody, who came by and chatted uh, in the live chat today. Kept me up on the facts. It looks like I've got some very entertaining, uh, entertaining rather, things to look at uh, when I go back here. I've seen some of what you guys have been saying. Looks like Trovo was having a problem, too. Ron was saying that he can't get video or audio on Trovo, and uh, I've... Uh, I've got the spinning death wheel on my Trovo, so I, I see your pain. I think it's going to be on Trovo side or Restream side, so we'll look into that. We'll see if there's something going on with that, but otherwise, thanks, everybody. We will be back here tomorrow to talk about more of the news and more probably what's going to be coming up out of the Chauvin trial. It's, I'm guessing, going to be plastered everywhere, so we will see you then. Until then, I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary.